Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Do you know a student getting ready to go to college? Or are you looking at going back to school yourself? The Woodward Hines Education Foundation and the Get to College program help more Mississippians get to and through college to get certificates and degrees that lead to meaningful employment. They offer free college planning advice, including hands-on FAFSA completion assistance through in-person or virtual appointments. Visit gettocollege.org to learn more. Good morning. It's 8.30 on Monday, April 17th. I'm Desiree Frazier. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, last month's tornadoes brought damage to much of the state. So we talked to the insurance commissioner about damaged claims. Then a sixth-generation descendant of Turkey Creek receives a grant to help preserve the land once owned by former slaves. Plus, a new traveling exhibit makes the Emmett and Mamie Till Mobley story accessible to young patrons. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. It's been nearly a month since a string of tornadoes devastated multiple Mississippi communities. Debris has been collected and power generally restored, but the process of rebuilding is still months and years ahead or away. Mike Cheney is the Commissioner of Insurance and Fire Marshal for the state of Mississippi. He tells us how his office initially responded to the storms and assesses the outlook for communities like Rolling Fork. The firemen are usually the first ones that get on the scene, they and the law enforcement folks. And the fire marshals are there to actually help and assist folks and also to be certain that we don't have any fires or anything that happens with things like propane gas. Uh, and a good example would be that on early in the morning on Saturday, the 25th of March, after the tornado had hit Rolling Fork, we had a guy that was riding by. He's, he's called a kind of a circuit rider with the Rural Water Association. Used to be a volunteer fireman. And this young man, uh, well, he's an older guy. He's in his 40s. Um, got out of his truck, saw the water tower had blown over, and there was a chlorine leak. And he risked his life to cut the chlorine off of two tanks to keep from having another catastrophic event just simply because he knew what to do. And that's part of our function is to train folks at the fire academy. But back to the question of what do we do, we go in and we help assess the damage that we see on the ground. We have drones that we use from the fire academy for search and rescue missions. We have drones at the state fire marshal's office that we use to assess damages, especially when you have fires from the air. So we have a lot of drone footage of, of the area, and we can get down and look in the buildings. We can go down inside of a building that's the roofs off of and look into a building. But that's just some of the things that we do. In terms of insurance coverage, are you able to tell how many people have coverage we can look at the number of people that have coverage by zip codes, 
Uh, we normally do not track that data that close, but we do. And uh, when we have a data call, uh, that's where we ask the companies to give us what damage has been reported. We track it very, very close. And the data today shows us that the uh, damage, just of insured damage, is approaching $100 million for Rolling Fork, Winona, Belzona, Silver City area, and all up through Monroe County. Do you anticipate problems with insurance companies trying to get those claims in and get them back out to folks quickly? We do. We do have some problems with the adjusters for the insurance companies um, adjusting claims rather quickly. And and I give you a, a quick example. I got a call from um, a friend of mine in Rolling Fork, actually a lawyer. And they were having trouble with an insurance company that insured the church. And their church was basically two-thirds destroyed. The picture of it's on the front page of one of the local papers here in Jackson. And uh, I sent an email early this morning up to Wisconsin, and they're already working. We couldn't get an adjuster out to do anything. And we've got some weird laws in the state of Mississippi where if your house burns down, we'll cover you 100%. But if it's a wind damage, uh, it's not total loss, and we can't get the legislature to fix that. I've been fighting that battle for 16 years, and uh, it's always an issue. You don't want to complain, but I'm just saying it's an issue, and we try to work through those problems. And here's a church that's just basically destroyed, and the company's saying, well, we may not pay you all your damage. Uh, I had a homeowner, and he said, you know, um, Mike, I, I, I live in Anguilla, and I think you know my family. I lost my house and my two vehicles are damaged and um, we can't get our adjuster to tell us anything. Our agent is happening. And agents are the, are the best bet for someone that's had damage, but we work through those issues. It's um, it's it's a, it's a deal for us that we have to stay on top of. And, and you ask about claims. We have a product called Crisis Tracker that we got MEMA to buy, and we were in partnership with them where people can put in their loss immediately after a storm, and it's called real time. So we pretty well know what the damage is going to be within, going to be within an area within 24 hours. For city buildings, for county buildings, how are those handled? City and county buildings are handled. Most of them will have insurance, but they're handled by the cities and the municipalities. We, we assist them, and that's where FEMA and MEMA come in on rescue and, and help because they supply money to rebuild the structures of schools and buildings that are destroyed uh, if they're not properly insured. That was a big deal. Uh, I was in the legislature when Katrina hit two years before I became insurance commissioner, so I'm very familiar with what happens uh, when you have a storm and and MEMA comes in or FEMA comes in and says, we're not going to cover your schools unless you have building codes. And, and at that time, I was chair of education in the, in the state Senate, and the schools on the Gulf Coast were almost a billion dollars in damage. And to get recovery funds, we had to have building codes. And that's how we ended up with building codes on the Gulf Coast. We passed them in uh, very early on in January of 2006, and uh, that would enable us to get the monies to rebuild the schools. Since you were involved in Hurricane Katrina and what happened with that, looking at Rolling Fork, do you have any idea how long it will take to get that town back into some semblance of being a town? We, we think that Rolling Fork is going to have a hard time recovering. Um, the path of that storm was a little over a, half a mile wide. 
and very long. And when it went through Rolling Fork, our drone footage just shows total de- total destruction. There's very little left standing that's usable. And when you have a, a structure with a roof off and the walls damaged, they have to come down. You can't live on them. You can't restore them. And it will be a hard time for, for Rolling Fork to come back with. It's it's heartbreaking. I, I've, I've spent an hour in a helicopter over Katrina. But I will tell you, Rolling Fork parallels them very close on total damage. It's just it's just like a bomb has been exploded in Rolling Fork. And I, I, by the way, I'm a combat veteran, so I can tell you I've seen a lot of damage from military when I was in Vietnam. None, none of that compares to what I saw at Rolling Fork. Well, that's definitely saying something. State Insurance Commissioner Mike Cheney, thank you for taking some time to speak with us about this issue. Thank you so very much. Coming up, a sixth-generation descendant of Turkey Creek receives a grant to help preserve the land once owned by former slaves. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Deep South Dining is the show all about the culture of Southern flavor. From fried chicken and collard greens to shrimp and grits and a glass of sweet tea. Subscribe now to the podcast using any podcast app or download our MPB public media app. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. A historian and former Boston school teacher is leading a 20-year effort to preserve the land and history of Turkey Creek, Mississippi. Derek Evans was awarded a $75,000 grant from the Bob Moses Education and Organizing Fund to pursue returning Turkey Creek to its rightful owners. A young educator, Bob Moses and fellow civil rights activists risked their lives and joined sharecroppers and day workers in Mississippi to forge a historic movement to register black people to vote. That was in the 60s. Now the fund bearing his name seeks to continue his legacy of dismantling historic inequities and disparities. In part one of our conversation, grant recipient Derek Evans describes the importance of the land once owned by former slaves. Not unlike uh, Bob Moses and the work in Mississippi um, that he's so well known for, um, the issues that I've been working on for over 20 years in Turkey Creek don't fit very neatly uh, or nicely into a particular uh, category. It's it's really a a whole community thing. Um, We're talking about um, environmental issues. We're talking about cultural uh, history uh, being recognized and, and salvaged and, and utilized uh, for future generations. We're talking about uh, municipal zoning uh, justice. We're talking about uh, hurricanes and other, uh, like BP oil spill disaster recovery uh resilience and justice, it's total community um, advocacy and stewardship, which I think is very uh, reflective or emblematic of Bob Moses' work over his lifetime, including um, in Freedom Summer and so forth in Mississippi, which wasn't just about voting rights, right, but also had freedom schools um, to uh, work with uh, young people and families and residents uh, a, a total and holistic approach, right, to community um, self 
awareness, self-education, and empowerment. And that is what we uh, have been doing and will continue to do in the Turkey Creek community. Just to be clear, Turkey Creek is in Mississippi, and you're trying to preserve the land and history of Turkey Creek. Why are you doing that? Well, I think there are three main reasons. The first is that I'm a sixth-generation native, descendant of the original freedmen and women who came out of slavery and established Turkey Creek in a a wilderness uh, here on the Gulf Coast. just four miles north of the Mississippi Sound. That's one reason. I have uh, blood in the soil and in the water uh, that draws me. Secondly, is that in this 21st century, uh, this vibrant uh, historic community and uh, environmental ecosystem has been severely uh, challenged and degraded by Uh, what you might call modern urbanization and various displacements of of people and community uh, assets. Uh, And so it's kind of a textbook uh, uh, example for anyone anywhere of um, the kind of displacement that can and does happen across the state and across our country, especially in these times. So there's that. It's an urgency. And then the third thing is, I'm like Bob Moses, I'm an educator. I come from a long line of educators, as did he. And I believe that the work is very instructive, um, that within and far beyond the, the boundaries of Turkey Creek, um, what we uh, face and how we face it um, and, how, and, and, you know, the wins and the losses alike uh, and, and the successes are very, have been and will continue to be very, very uh, inspiring and instructive, I believe, to, to other communities that are uh, facing displacements and need to turn that into endurance. Um, you know, there's a, sometimes, as Bob Moses taught us, you can turn your challenges and problems into your solutions. When you talk about Turkey Creek, are we talking about a small town? Are we talking about wetlands? Describe the topography. Sure. Like so many areas along um, the Gulf Coast and and also along the river, Mississippi River and other rivers in our state, Turkey Creek is a very uh, low-lying area. Um, In our case, it's there's three ways to understand Turkey Creek. For one, it's a 20,000 uh, acre, which is not very big, a 20,000 acre drainage basin, okay? Um, it is also a 13-mile stream, half of which is a tidal estuary, as in it is connected to the oceans of the earth. And it is also a historic African-American community uh, where that stream meets other streams that then go to Biloxi Bay and into the Mississippi Sound and the Gulf of Mexico. So it is first and foremost uh, an ecological or an environmental location with sort of predetermining conditions of what uh, can and cannot occur there as far as human activity uh, and what over the centuries uh, my people um, and uh, others like the city of Gulfport um, have had to contend with and make decisions about. It's not a very easy place to, um, 
to 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 build something that and that will endure and last, you know, for eons, uh, including the constant threat of hurricanes. Right? We we were hard hit directly by Hurricane Katrina. Um, so there's that. There's the environmental location and and character. Then there's also, like I said, the history of uh, survival and stewardship. Uh, in that area, the community institutions that evolved over the years. It's been anchored by a United Methodist Church. Uh, it's been anchored by, its for a long time, many generations, up until about my time, uh, it was anchored by its own um, school that the original settlers um, established uh, in the 1800s. And it was also a place that uh, where the residents, who were my ancestors, invited industry early on in the industrialization of Mississippi and the Gulf Coast uh, for the forest industries. Are there structures okay. there? Oh, yeah. There are homes. Uh, there are a lot of homes. Like, we have a lot of, you know, mostly bungalow-style cottages. There's some shotgun-style homes. There's some newer homes um, as well. It's, it's pretty richly... Uh, you know, endowed with different homes. It's not a very big place, and it, but it's surrounded by urban and coastal sprawl, airports, highways, interstate. I mean, it's, Turkey Creek right now is, is sort of a very, it's a small coastal African-American community uh, closely surrounded on all sides by either water and wetlands or more increasingly, the airport, the interstate, Highway 49, a lot of commercial and industrial sprawl. Does anybody live there? Oh, yeah. I'm, I'm related there. There are about 200 people. And most all of us descend from one or another of the, the early couples who came out of slavery to establish the community. Tomorrow, in part two of our conversation. It was on its way to being erased as a community or as a living, uh, almost museum, right? Of, of of important uh, local and American and Mississippi legacy and heritage. How the effort to preserve Turkey Creek continues and what Evans hope is the future of the community. Coming up, a new traveling exhibit makes the Emmett and Mamie Till Mobley story accessible to young patrons. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. This podcast is a local production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting. It's made possible in part by contributions from podcast listeners. Please consider making a contribution by going to the Donate Now tab at mpbonline.org. Thanks for your financial support. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. Let the world see. That's the theme of the latest traveling exhibition at the two Mississippi museums. The family-oriented exhibit tells the story of Emmett and Mamie Till Mobley in a manner that is accessible for younger audiences. Pam Jr., director of the two Mississippi museums, shares more with our Michael Gidry. The Indianapolis Children's Museum called us and said, we really want you to be the first to have this exhibition. We talked, I think COVID came about, and the talking stopped. But then they were able to raise the money that was necessary to create this exhibition. And here we go. We were the first to have it. And we're really excited because it is an exhibition that really 
really tugs at the heart, not only that, but it's children-friendly. And that's important for us because when you walk into the two Mississippi museums, you have the, 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 the Museum of Mississippi History and you have the Museum of the Civil Rights, Mississippi Civil Rights Museum. So having those museums, and, and it kind of has highs and lows, but a place where children can actually come in to an exhibition, that, that really saves a lot for the Children's Museum of Indianapolis and us because we have so many children that enter the doors of the museums. What goes into making an exhibit like this? When, when For anyone who's familiar with the Till story and how horrific it is, um, what goes into making that family-friendly and telling those stories in an, an appropriate and accessible way for younger audiences? You know, I, I don't know all the intricacies of what the Children's Museum of Indianapolis did, but I'm sure they had focus groups. They had people, they had children to come in. They tested the exhibition and, and asked a lot of questions. You know, children are, you know, a lot of people think because they're children that their minds are not expanded and they, they don't have a lot of questions, but they do. They have a lot of questions. That their, their curiosity level is very high. So, it's, again, it's so important for us to have an exhibition like this because we do have so many children in here. We do, children are facing so much right now. So to have an exhibition with something of a child that was 14 years old that happened in 1955, and most of these children don't know anything about it, but to that, that, that teachable moment to teach them about something like this that happened and just to think that a lot of this is happening today so they're able able to compare what happened in 1955 to something that happened in 2023. Uh, This all kind of in a climate where there's lots of contention about uh, the role of African-American studies, black studies, and where it fits in the educational process. Why is it important having something like this uh, in that context and, and, and making sure that that conversation uh, is accessible to younger audiences? Well, you know, first of all, history is history. It's not going to change. It's history. It's history. It's her, her story. And, and I just think that we all grow from learning about it. So we have these two museums. And as our former governor, William Winter, would say, the largest educational classrooms in the state of Mississippi. And I tell people that what, whatever we have on our walls is factual information, and they're able to come in here and learn and, and, and go home and teach their children. Our children are able to come in and, and learn the information, then go back and teach their parents. So there's this information here, regardless of what happens outside the walls, we're teaching factual information inside the two Mississippi museums. This exhibition once it leaves Mississippi, we'll we'll go to Illinois, Georgia, Tennessee. Uh, but when that's all over, it's it, it's going to be a permanent part of the Emmett Till Interpretive Center in Sumner, Mississippi, as a museum director and as as, as a Mississippian. How important uh, is it to you that something like this resides here in Mississippi and in a place like Sumner, um, which is so closely tied to uh, the the Till story? Well, you know, when I think about that, what I think about is that, you know, the two Mississippi museums, we are like this nucleus, and these arms are reaching out to all the museums throughout the state of Mississippi. And now children will be able to come and really visually see 
at the interpretive center of what actually happened. Just another museum within the state that that is creating a space where people can come in and learn the history. It's all about learning the history wherever it is in the state of Mississippi. I was just telling somebody everywhere that you walk in the state of Mississippi, when you put your foot down, there's history. It's just knowing what that history is in the in the soil of the uh and the dirt of Mississippi. But wherever you are, we are just we are this vast place, this, this amazing place just filled with history. And I want everybody to learn about us, to to, to know about our history and, and to be able to tell others about us. All right. The exhibition is Emmett Till and Mamie Till Mobley, Let the World See. Uh, it'll be at the two Mississippi museums in Jackson until May 14th. And we've been speaking with Pamela Jr., director of the two Mississippi museums. Thank you so much for taking some time uh, to, to, to share this information about this exhibit with us and about the work you continue to do um, with the two Mississippi museums. Thank you so much. It's, it's really been a pleasure. This has been Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio.